Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast about individual and organizational resilience. It's where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. My guest today is Rob Cummings. Rob is the managing director and CTO at Falfurious Capital Partners, a Charlotte-based private equity firm that acquires or invests in middle market businesses. At Falfurious, he provides management oversight and guidance to their portfolio companies and leads strategic initiatives for the business. And he participates as a member of the deal team, leading the tech and operations diligence for prospective investments at the firm. Rob is also the co-founder of DealCloud, a deal management software as a service platform that is now used in close to 1,000 firms participating in lending and on the buy side and sell side of deals. Rob architected the original DealCloud software platform and was instrumental in growing the business into a major software as a service provider to the mergers and acquisitions industry. In August 2018, Rob and his business partners sold DealCloud to strategic acquirer Intap. Following the acquisition, Rob exited the business entirely, but continues to mentor the Charlotte office. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So Innovation Week is next week in Charlotte, and you're taking part in Seed the South. Seed the South is a high-profile event bringing together startups and investors as a way to highlight, celebrate, and grow the entrepreneurial scene here in Charlotte and the Southeast. Before we talk about your involvement in Seed the South and your advice for people pitching at the event, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from originally, and what brought you to Charlotte? Great. So uh, originally from Baltimore and uh, went to school in Virginia, went to school at Virginia Tech. Uh, You know, the big sucking sound from Virginia Tech is the D.C. area, which is where I started my career at at the time at one of the big five um, accounting and consulting firms, which was Arthur Anderson, which is no longer in business. Mm. So I started my career there, met my wife there, moved around, uh, landed in New York City, or I was in New Jersey, but working in New York City. Wife and I looked at each other one day and said, we want to have kids, and if we're going to be commuting into Manhattan from New Jersey, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so our options, you know, both having a financial services background, you know, we said, well, we could return to Baltimore because we're both from Maryland, or, hey, Charlotte looks like a pretty cool city. Um, and I had some friends down here that were also in the financial services industry, um, but I really didn't know much about Charlotte. I had been down to Charlotte for a guy's weekend um, had a lot of fun. It was a really clean city and it seemed shiny and new. Yeah. So, uh, long story short, my wife, you know, working on wall street, got a job in a week at first union. Next thing you know, we're moving to Charlotte. And so that was, uh, 21 years ago when I landed in Charlotte, I actually took a job with a very, very early stage, um, CRM company, a company called Ucentric. And, uh, that was my real first taste of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, I was one of the first uh, six hires there, and we grew the business to about 250 employees, sold it to a strategic acquirer in J.D. Edwards, sold it over and over again, and eventually it became Oracle. Um, so went through a complete, uh, you know, multiple sales and stuck on and, you know, then realized, oh my gosh, I'm working for 
big Oracle and it's not fun anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's when, uh, when I left and I had a couple other stops at, uh, software companies, um, and then oddly enough, landed in uh, private equity. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of the deal cloud of the Falfurious and the deal cloud story. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about deal cloud. Um, on the website, it says it's not just a CRM and it's more than a CRM. So not everyone listening will know what customer relationship management software is and why it's so important for businesses. So can you explain that and explain why DealCloud is different? Yeah, and it goes back to, again, the Ucentric days 18 years ago. Customer relationship management software is is software for managing um, your customers, your partners, your prospects. Um, It's got everything from the Salesforce automation component, which would be, let's see, your deal pipeline, you know, take deals through a process to close, marketing automation, that type of thing. What we did with DealCloud is we said there, you know, the the big, the the, the 10,000-pound gorilla in the space is Salesforce.com. But Salesforce.com is built for selling widgets, not for doing mergers and acquisition transactions. In fact, in, you know, they call them accounts in Salesforce. Well, that language, that lingo doesn't work in the M&A industry. And so we kind of set out and said, let's build a very industry-specific CRM system, deal management system, um, specific for um, acquirers of companies, for um, uh, investment banks, which think of investment bank like a real estate agent. They're your advisor um, if you're selling a company. And then lenders and everybody that participates in the M&A process. So, um, you know, it is a finite market. So there are only so many private equity firms, investment banks, specialty lenders out there. But we became really laser focused on building functionality for each of the different use cases for for those different uh, entities. And, you know, fast forward today, 10 years later, DealCloud has really become the standard CRM or deal management platform in the industry because we're just laser focused on that. And so you know, every deal we would come up against Salesforce and we're like, do you want something that was built for the type of business that you do? Or do you want something that was built for widgets that are going to have to be completely configured to how a private equity firm worked? And so that strategy worked. Now, interestingly enough, when we went out to fundraise, we used to get dinged a lot about the size of our market. You know, your total, your TAM or your total addressable market isn't big enough. Well, if you can dominate your niche market, you can do quite well. And that's what we did. So walk me through a little bit how it started. You were working at Fal... Falfurious, yeah. Falfurious. By the way, I love that name. (laughs) Falfurious. Originally, Mm -hmm. and then you sort of developed DealCloud out of Falfurious. Can you talk to me about how that started and how that worked out? So when I joined Falfurious being a software guy, um, my boss at the time said, you know, Rob, we need something to run our business. We need a deal management platform to track all our interactions with investment banks, all the deals that we show, our investors, and that type of thing. See what's out there. Um, So how the story goes, what was out there with Salesforce.com? And again, I had a problem with something that was built for selling widgets, not for selling, buying and selling companies. So I decided to build something myself. And um, I built it, it's embarrassing to say today, but I built it on top of a Microsoft SharePoint uh, platform, and then there was another middleware layer on top of that with a company out of Switzerland. And so um, I haven't programmed since I was uh, in college, 
But, um, you know, the tools today are more of a point and click and a lot of, you know, you can build queries and stuff just through point and click. And that's how I built uh, the platform. And it, it evolved over several years. And then we started fundraising for Falfuria's second fund. We are bringing in prospective limited partners, investors, and they would look at, we would talk about this great program that we have to run the Falfurious business. And everybody that saw it said, this is really unique to the industry. You should think about commercializing it. Well, it didn't take, it, it took a couple of times hearing that. And we heard it dozen, 20 times over and over again. And finally, um, I looked at my business, uh, my future business partner, Ben, who was an associate at, uh, at Falfurious and said, I think we're on to something here. He said, I can sell this if you can get it up and running at customers and, you know, run the business. And that's what we did. That's how we split our, 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 our job. So it started as Ben and I. We took office space over in Packard Place. He was on a plane all the time. Well, it started in Charlotte. We got a couple friends and family firms here. Like Capitala Group has been a user since day one. Um, they were one of our early adopters there here in, in Charlotte. Um, and, you know, Ben started selling it. Um, I would do all the implementation work, and we would support our clients together. And we were just manic about it. I mean, 24 by 7, every client had our cell phone number. If anything went wrong, call us directly. And that's how we built the business. Um, but there's a lot of, <laughs> it sounds, uh, it sounds easy, but wow, there was a lot of ups and downs and, and challenges and failures and that type of thing. So, yeah. And I've heard, you know, when you're building a business, there are two types of employees, the ones that build the thing and the ones that sell the thing. Mm -hmm. So is that one of the reasons why you and Ben were successful as co-founders? Cause one of you is building it and one of you is selling it. Did you bring different strengths to the table? That was the biggest thing. The other thing is, is that Ben had worked in investment banking and in private equity. So he understood both sides of the transaction where I was, I was actually a, a neophyte to the private equity industry. I really didn't know it that well, um, just because I kind of stumbled into the job that I had. So he, I would consider Ben the industry expert. So he'd be like, you know, here's the day in the life of investment bankers sitting in their seat and what they need to do. Um, I would turn that, I was good at writing software specs and, and turning the use case into technology. And so again, our skill sets just played off of each other because he could verbalize it and I could interpret it into software speak. And, uh, and that recipe just worked extremely well. And, um, and then, you know, fast forward, you know, we both ran the business you know, Ben tended to take a lead on all of the fundraising activities. Um, you know, I took a lead with all of our customer relationships. Um, you know, so as I said, they had our phone numbers. They would call us directly, and they did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're talking about a very, very high-performing client base. Um, you know, typically our clients were the best of the best in college, and but they expect... Um, you know, e egos expect uh, a certain <laughs> level of service, and yeah. that's what we had to provide. Yeah, especially with that niche market. Yeah, you know, they're not really they're not really messing around. They're, they will call you. Oh, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so from what I understand, Deal Cloud started in 2010 and expanded mm -hmm. into New York in 2015. You continued growing Deal Cloud throughout 2017 opened an office in London in 2018, and sold the business later that year yeah. to mm -hmm. NTAP. Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through what happened between 2010 and 2015 before launching the New York office? 
How are you growing the business on the client side and mm-hmm. on the investment side? So we were working out of Packard Place, um, and it was just one client at a time. So, so the whole model in software as a service, first you got to land the customer, and then it's all about keeping the customer. So you'll hear the word churn. You can't let churn happen. You got to continue to build the business. And so, you know, to not churn customers, you got to keep them happy. And so then they renew. Um, and, you know, the way our contracts work, it was it, at minimum a one-year upfront deal. So they would pay for their full year of their service, of their software um, at a time. Um, it would take would take roughly six to eight weeks to get them live. What that meant is is that we had to take their data. Um, we would build in their specific workflows into our tool, and we would convert all their data over, and then they would be live. And then you have to support them from there um, and make sure that they're, they're happy. So, you know, we just did that client by client. We kind of started in Charlotte. As I mentioned, Capitalo was one of our first when there was a couple other firms. Um, but Ben had some good relationships up in New York. Well, you know, 2012 was a big fundraising year. After that, then we became just laser focused on growing our customer base. And Ben was on a flight to LaGuardia every week. Um, if you think about private equity firms, investment banks, 60%, well, it's probably less now, but 60% of our client base at the time were in the New York City area. So Ben was on a plane all the time. He was sleeping on friends' couches and but he was going up to New York and selling, and I was back in Charlotte running the business and, and getting customers live. Um, so then, after I don't know how many flights to LaGuardia, Ben looked at me and said, I'm moving to, to New York because I know I can sell this tool. If I, am, if I don't have to deal with travel and you know lost days, if I can do six meetings a day, five days a week, I'm yeah. going to really sell this. So he picks up and moves. He rents his house down here. He leaves his car in Charlotte. He leaves his life in Charlotte and just gets a flat up in New York City and, and does what he says. He starts selling the heck out of the, the solution. So next thing you know, we have a really good customer base in, in, uh, in New York. And so then, that was, it was his decision. It's not like you and he had a no, conversation, no, hey, him, yeah. we can grow it more if yeah. you go. It was his, he's yeah. just like, I'm going. And as is typical, he's like, I'll do it for a year. Well, he still lives up there. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so, yeah. So he's been up there ever since. And, uh, you know, I think one day he'll get back to Charlotte. But it's it's been really, you know, really successful. And then there was a couple other pockets. It's a, it's a very small industry. So we landed probably the largest private equity firm in Dallas, Texas. And next thing you know, they tell all their friends at ACG meetings, which is kind of the industry group. And next thing you know, we have you know ten firms in Dallas, Texas, of all places, that are using our software. So we started doing these little pockets, um, and it's just word of mouth, people telling their friends that hey, DealCloud really works. You know, it solves our use case, and it kind of went like that. So, and that's how London came to be. Next thing you know, we get a, a client in London. They start telling their friends, and you know, we're on planes back and forth to London to sell and implement. And so we started an office and that's just kind of how everything evolved over time. But, you know, the big tipping point was in 2015, we had run a profitable business. That's another thing that's kind of unique is that we went out and fundraised in 2012 and weren't very successful. So that's one of our failures. Um, And, you know, we can go into detail on that, but uh, we ended up myself and my partners and Ben, we ended up putting more money into the business and brought in one outside investor that was a lifelong private equity guy. He he knew the pain that we were solving. But um, the amount of money that we, we were able to capitalize the business is, is actually pretty small. 
So we decided to run a profitable business. And so the great thing about the SaaS model is that you get paid up front. So we never did any hiring. We didn't spend any money until the money was in the bank. But when we had that, when we could see that we had the money in the bank and, you know, for the foreseeable future, we would go hire our next employee. And I mean, it was a slow grind, but, you know, over that time from 2010 to 2015 or 2014, we grew up, you know, about eight employees and, uh, you know, all working. Actually, I think at one point we were seven of us shoulder to shoulder in a room. Um, you know, a little bit bigger than this yeah, room. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was an interesting process of working out of a Packard place shoulder to shoulder, but that's how we built the business. And, um, you know, profitability was a good thing. So by 2015, um, we were throwing, we were making money and we became attractive to a venture capital investment. And that's when we started fund, you know, real fundraising, for you know millions of dollars at that point, and that's that's what we were able to do in December of 2015. We closed a 5.3 million dollar, um, call it a Series A. Got it. So, do you have advice for listeners who are just starting to pursue investors? Where do you start? How does it work? What is the process like? Oh boy, you know. So we'll go back to 2012. It was really hard. We we pitched. Um, individuals, wealthy individuals, we pitched angel groups, and we uh, pitched institutional investors. You know, the biggest thing is, and I heard this last night when I met, met with uh, one of the co-founders of a, a startup here in Charlotte, you got to get your lead investor. You'll get a lot of people hanging around the hoop saying, yeah, soft circle me, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in, but they're not writing the term sheet. So it really doesn't mean anything until someone writes down you know, what the valuation is, you know, what the, the amount of the raise is, you need a lead investor to come in. And the thing is, is that a lead investor is typically going to be an institutional investor or maybe um, a family office that has a lot of money. You know, I'm involved with Charlotte Angel Fund. Uh, I think we've been the lead investor once out of, you know, 20, 25 investments that we made. So we're typically going off of someone else's term sheet and invest and, and co-investing alongside of them. So my advice is, is you got to find the lead investor. And this company I met with last night, you know, they have several hundred thousand dollars soft circle, but they don't have a lead investor yet. And it, so it doesn't really, it doesn't mean anything until you have them. How do you find them? It's hard. Um, and so I just gave you three different kind of levels. You have the high net worth individual, you have um, angel groups, and then you have institutional investors. And then you could maybe put in family offices in there also. There's pros and cons of all of them. First of all, with high net worth individuals, find someone that has li- that understands the pain inside and out that you're solving for. That's what we did in 2012. We found a guy that he founded the, um, the Charlotte office at Carlisle. And so he had lived in private equity. He knew the pain. Um, it was actually the easiest pitch we ever did. Within five minutes, he's like, I get it, I'm in. Oh, I love it. Isn't and, that great? you know, this is after oh. just beating our head against the door, talking to so many people and being told our, our TAM wasn't big enough and you're not far along with your software, you know, and this guy just got it. Yeah. Um, so if you can, so from the high net worth individual, either find someone that's super rich <laughs> or someone that understands your pain. Yeah. Angel groups are tough. We had a really, really tough time with angel groups. And uh, now I'm on the other side of the table because I, I am um, with Charlotte Angel Fund and I'm a board member at Charlotte Angel Fund. 
but the thing you need to realize with, with angel funds is they're going to move slowly. Um, at least with us, it, nobody has a full-time job doing it, so it's everybody's spare time, and it just takes time. If you have time and you can work through their process, then it's great. But don't, don't expect to pitch to Charlotte Angel Fund or any other angel fund if you're trying to close your round in two weeks. It's just not going to happen. Right. Um, and I think that frustrates some entrepreneurs. Now, me personally, I've made it a point that if we decide to move forward with doing due diligence, I'm going to make sure I have time on my calendar, actually dedicate the time to do it right and to not string along the entrepreneur. Because that's what happened to us when we were dealing with angel groups. We got strung along for months by one angel group, not in Charlotte. And it was really frustrating. And they never opened the data room. And and it was just, uh, it, and so I just vowed that I'd never do that to someone. Then the third piece is institutional investors. Um, you know, the, there's, you get, there's always the, uh, you know, are we big enough for, for VC or family office money? Um, you know, I know some family offices in the area that will, will fund, um, you know, early stage companies. And, you know, there, there are a handful of them out there. Um, if you can find a VC to write your term sheet, that's golden. Um, we had a really tough time with that the first time around. Now, the second time around, we did find it. Um, but again, we had a profitable business that was throwing off some cash. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about investors, pitching, seed the sales, and deal cloud. So stick around. Soreness and pain isn't always the result of activity. This is a 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Prolonged sitting in a car or at your job aggravates muscles and joints and can cause pain. A standing desk can help. The key to alleviating the discomfort that sitting can cause is changing positions more frequently during the day. Alternating between sitting and standing at your desk, in addition to taking walk breaks and stretching, can work to loosen those tight muscles and joints. The perfect standing desk should be high enough so your computer keyboard is at elbow level and your monitor at face level to avoid neck strain. Before you start standing at your desk, take into consideration any knee or foot injuries and wear flat, comfortable shoes. This has been your 60-second wellness tip, powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. So I love what you said about find someone who understands the pain point. Right. right. That's so important because if they understand the pain point, then they're going to understand the value, which is really what you're pitching, right? You're not pitching, oh, hey, we want to do this thing. Will you give us money to do the thing? It's we want to solve a problem. Can you help us solve this problem? And if they understand the problem, if they felt and been squeezed by that pain point, then they're like, yes, please solve this because if I have it, then other people are going to have it which means that other people are going to buy it, which means that I'm going to make some money. So I love the fact that you said that. That's such yeah. a great thing to think about, to really figure out who has already experienced it and then work with them because they're going to get it as opposed to finding investors that are like, yeah, you guys seem really like you're smart, you're confident, you're great, it's a good business model, we'll make money. But they might not understand it right. at that emotional level and have them get squeezed, squeezed and, by it. And as I mentioned before, Ben knew the pain. He had been a banker. He had been a private equity professional. So he knew the pain from both sides, from buy side and sell side. 
Um, so he was able to verbalize it. Then we had to find investors that understood that same pain, Yeah. Um, which we found one. Well, yeah, sometimes you just need that, that first one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's great. When you're an entrepreneur, it's a bit like being strapped into the front seat of an emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. that never stops for years on end. And the highs are really high and the lows are really low, yep. right? And you talked about 2012, you were pitching and it wasn't going anywhere and you could, couldn't get investors and you're getting stringed along by the, these angel funds, which yeah. feels like, oh my God, it's happening. We're going to do it. Yeah. And then nothing happens. And then nothing happens, yeah. So what advice do you have for managing the highs and the lows? Um, you, you know, I'm not, pro- I'm probably not the best person to give advice, but you gotta, you gotta remain even keel. I tend to be emotional. Um, so especially with the lows, like, you know, the, the, Me the sky is falling and, uh, yeah, I'm, you, a, ch- you I'm know, a chicken little, you know, all of our customers are going to churn. Um, you, you know, we had an outage in 2014, November 7th, 2014 oh, to be exact. I can date. still remember the date. And I got a call at two in the morning from my lead architect and he said, Rob, we're down. And I said, okay, well, you know, how many hours is it going to take to rebuild? And he said, I got to rebuild this from the ground up. It's going to take a day. And I, and, you know, panic a day. We don't have a day. We're a software as a service. People expect your software to be working 24 seven. Well, the short story is it took 36 hours to rebuild. And, um, it was, uh, it was stressful. It's like you walk into the office that morning and there was nothing to do with the software because it wasn't up. And what our job became was dialing every single customer. And so we talked about it that morning and we said, what's our strategy here? And Ben and myself and one other individual, we said, we're calling every single customer. No email. You know, we can do email updates, but we're going to call every single customer. And oh, what's yeah. Going on. It's the best thing to do. Absolutely. Um, I don't think there's anything else you really can do. It's you, you have to get on the phone. You, you have, have to, to make it. On. You have to make it personal. You know, at the time though, it was like it was about a hundred enterprise customers, so it was some rapid dialing, and we just split up the list and we started calling and we put our tail between our legs and said it's our bad, um, but we're going to get this fixed. We know you're an important customer, and you know I would say ninety five percent of customers understood. They were angry. Yeah. Um, because, you know, this is the system that they flipped on every morning when they when they came into the office. But, you know, 95% of them were understanding. A couple of them used it as a negotiating chip on their renewal. Sure. Um, and, you know, one or two were just downright mean about it. But, you know, out of 100, if 2% were mean about it, I think we were doing pretty well. Why do you think that 95% of them were cool about it? Why do you think that 95% understood? Because we had a personal relationship with them. Yeah. And, um you know, we would, we had been to their office. You know, that's the other thing is, is that in the beginning, our average deal size was pretty small. So it was really kind of hard to justify getting on a plane to sell. Like we could have gone with the internal sales model where you're just dialing for dollars and doing go to meeting, um, screen share demos all the time. But, you know, Ben got on a plane and that meant a lot. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I still think the personal interaction means a lot. So we knew all these customers personally. Ben had sold them. I'd probably been out to their office to to do the implementation. So we had personal relationships, and people people just appreciated the honesty. And uh, you know, I'm so glad we didn't compose the mass email and say, "Hey, sorry." You know, then our phone would have been ringing off the hook, and I, it would just been impersonal. Yeah. So I went. I think it went a long way to just you know put our tail between the legs, and you know 
mentioned that it's our fault. We understand that there's service level agreements in place and we're not adhering to them. So yeah. November 7th came and went. By November 9th, <laughs> we were up and running. <laughs> Every November 7th, does it usually it does. wake up in horror? Like, uh, oh my I, God, it's been I five still years. text my guy Raj who still works at Deal Cloud every November 7th. I said, do you remember this day? It was it was a, a dark day in the Deal Cloud history. Right, yeah. Well, a dark day, but handled really, really yeah, well. Yeah, we didn't churn any customers. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. That's huge to have an outage like that and to maintain is huge. So thinking about, um, you know, the show is called Fun with Failure, mm-hmm. not just fun with awesome successes and never ever having anything go wrong podcast. Mm -hmm. It's fun with failure. What's your definition of failure? That's a tough question. Um, We did have a significant pivot in the company and it was, and looking back today, it was a failure. So we had this great deal management platform that I've been talking about, but all of a sudden we saw the bright new shiny object that we wanted to build. And it was a, it was a marketplace um, and we called it dealcloud.com. And I enlisted a team in India. I flew back and forth to India four times, um, spent a ton of time, ton of money, years building a really, really cool product that nobody bought. And, um, you know, there was, you know, fast forward to three years after we started it. And I'll never forget the day that we actually took the login off of the web page. And it was a it was a real bummer because put, you know, just incredible energy into it. That was a failure, and you know the definition of the failure there is that we developed a product that people didn't want, and I think that I think software companies do that a lot, fall into that trap that I know exactly what people want, and so I'm going to develop this really cool thing, and it turns out you miss the mark, and that was a failure with us with DealCloud.com, and as I said, we spent a lot of time and money, and ultimately, you know, we sold it a little bit, but it ultimately was not; it, it was a failure. So why do you think it missed the mark? Were you not testing? Were you not doing research? Were you not doing you know, demos with potential customers? Like why, do you know why it didn't work? I like if you built, and I do think companies all the time, you could build the sexiest, best piece of technology yeah. in the world and tech people love doing it, right? Like, oh, I'm just going to keep improving if we just keep working on the right. tech. Yeah. Uh, but, but sometimes that's a, tra- that's a trap it people is a, fall yeah, into. It is a trap. Um, if I look back, I think the technology we built was really cool. Um, in investor pitches back in 2012, it was always the lead that we can't, it was our own technology built from the ground up in .NET. Um, it was sexy. It had a good UI. Um, it was feature rich. Uh, the failure was is that um, when we released the product, a couple competitors came into the space and Um, we had to differentiate ourselves somehow. And so we decided to go with a freemium model. And that was a mistake. Um, Freemium and B2B can be the kiss of death because businesses will associate free with no value. Yeah. And that's where we we failed is we did freemium. And um, when we started upselling for higher end features, you know, think of LinkedIn. You know, you can go to LinkedIn today, but you can also do LinkedIn Navigator. You can do, you know, pay a monthly fee to see how many people are seeing you and all that. That, you know, that's a freemium model. Um, But in our model, uh, just businesses didn't put value on the premium features because they were getting so much for free. And so when we tried to convert them, 
I mean, we should have just made even the base, you know, features a hundred bucks or something like that. Sure. Yep. Um, but it was really hard to go from free to a hundred rather than we should have gone from a hundred to 2,500. And I think we would have had easier time doing that. Right. Um, so, you know, it turned out to just be a mistake, but the reason we went freemium was just to be differentiated against our biggest competitor that we're doing more of the pay to play model. Got it. Yeah. That's interesting. Thinking of, you know, the freemium model as the kiss of death. Yeah. And it's true, right? You know, I, I mean, it works a lot better in B2C than it does. Right. In B2B. I was just going to say but, that. You know, there's been plenty of successful businesses that do it B2B, but we just missed the mark there. So do you like to fail? No. <laughs> and I, I ask that. I don't yeah. either. It's another reason I started the podcast, right? I hate failure. But I've talked to some entrepreneurs and like, oh, I love it. Yeah, I no. love it because we're testing and we're iterating. And if I'm not failing five times a day, then I'm not pushing myself hard enough. So tell me, and again, knowing that I feel the same way you do, but tell me why you don't like to fail. Our initial investors were Hugh McCall, Mark Oaken, and a couple other people. I, I don't want to fail for them. Uh, you know, it just, that's what would keep you up away, you know, up at night is that the last thing I want to do, Hugh McCall, who probably has the biggest influence on this city, yeah. if he knows that he invested in a company that ultimately failed, that kept me awake at night. Um, that was certainly one of the, the motivations. Um, but, you know, we were successful. We made Mr. McCall uh, a nice sum of money, um, and everything worked out. But that's what, you know, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't like to fail. Um, I was very distraught after having to pull the login off of dealcloud.com. The good news is, is the original platform that I talked about earlier, that was going gangbusters, and it was, you know, we were building a really nice business and ultimately built a great business with that product. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know. Failure is a thing, and I, I think everybody goes through it personally and 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 professionally, and uh, it's just something that you got to live with and, and learn from. I, I think that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. And for those people who aren't in Charlotte, you know, Hugh McCall, it does have a huge influence on on the city. I know, having worked at Queens University, right, it's the McCall School of Business. Right. I do uh, pitch workshops in the McCall School of Business for the pitch competition. Yeah. It is everyone, everyone in the city knows the name. And so I think thinking through failure and whether or not you like to fail, if it's something that you're doing on your own, like a solopreneur, then it's, okay, yeah, I like failing because I'm growing or whatever. Right. But if you're taking other people down with you, it makes sense that, you you know, failure wouldn't be something that would be considered fun or desirable. Right. Now, failure insofar as we're trying, if it doesn't work, we're learning, we're doing it better next time, you know, then it's different, like you said, if you can learn from it. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, failing just to fail when <laughs> other people's money is on the line isn't, like, super fun. Right, right. So let's talk about Seed the South. For those people attending, um, what's your role this year and what can they expect? So I think I'll have dual role. Um, there's several panels. I'm not exactly sure which one um, I've been slotted on. Sure. Um, but uh, I typically participate on the panels. And then, you know, I, I am now wearing the investor hat. Um, so I'm invested in, you know, Charlie Angel Fund that I told you. I personally invested in... Um, direct invested in some companies in Charlotte. And, um, you know, I'm an investor in Idea Fund Partners, which is arguably the largest VC um, here in North Carolina. 
Uh, so I go into Seed the South with my investor hat on, but I also want to be a resource for the entrepreneurs because hopefully like the story I'm telling today and some of the failures we went through and some trials and tribulations, I can, I can talk about that, whether it's on a panel or, you know, one-on-one with uh, entrepreneurs. But, uh, you know, I think my, my official badge will have the, you know, the little thing that says investor on the bottom. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in investing in companies. Uh, you know, I tend to be a pretty conservative investor. Um, and I think part of that is just because of my day job. I'm seeing companies that are much, much larger than any company that will be at Seed the South. Um, mm-hmm. So at a private equity firm, we're looking for companies that have $5 million of uh, EBITDA and above. And so it's a completely different stratosphere, um, different type of company. And so that probably makes me more conservative, to be honest with you. Yeah. So as an investor, what are you looking for in a good pitch? What are the must-haves and what are the deal-breakers? You know, um, when I sit at, for pitches at Charlotte Angel Fund, I have a checklist of eight items, and I'm not going to be able to rattle them off off the top of my head now. Um, but, you know, it's everything from the team to the market um, competition. You know, my favorite one is traction. Um, are you doing what we did with DealCloud.com where you're, you're building a really cool product that no one wants? And that really makes me nervous. So, you know, you'll, you'll hear about this cool product. Maybe you'll get some screenshots or maybe even you'll get a demo. But I learned the hard way that you can develop a really cool piece of software that no one wants. And, of course, I'm, I'm talking about software now. So sure, yeah. um, to me, I want to know how many people are using the system. Are you generating revenue? Um, you know, are there multiple constituencies that appeal? Um, and, and what business pain are you? Business pain, of course, is the other one. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm a big traction guy. I always say, you know, give me. And, and I like to see. I personally like to see the very first slide in the pitch that just kind of gives me a summary of everything. Here's what the here's what we're building. The pain that we're solving. Here's the traction that we have, and here are the deal terms. Just give me the summary, and and hopefully, and then something in your pitch has to grab the audience. Um, and and I know you're a storyteller, but I think storytelling with a pitch is the best thing to do. Don't just stand yeah. up and read your slides. If you can tell a personal story as to why you developed this healthcare app or this um, medical device because you had an aging parent that went through this, that's really compelling. And I think it grabs the audience's attention right away. And, um, you know, we see, we see those at, at Charlotte Angels, Angel Fund, certainly. I'm so glad you said that. So as a pitch coach myself, right, I work with clients and help them figure out their story. I'm working with someone now. He's going, they've already raised $2 million. They're going after another two. And it's a tech company. It's a health tech company. And he went to, he went to a conference recently and was seeing other people pitch and talk about their products. And he came back from the conference, and we were sort of just getting started. And I said, so tell me about the conference. You know, wh- what, st- what stood out to you? What do you remember? Who do you think did a really good job? And he proceeded to tell me a story of a woman who created this product, and it was a numbing gel mm-hmm. for patients before they get injections. And he said, you know, her son had been really sick when he was a little kid, four years old, and he was going into the doctors over and over and over again to get these injections. And they put the they put this cream on him, and it was supposed to numb it, but it didn't. 
And he was in so much pain every single time. And then he developed this aversion to going to the doctors. And she was a doctor herself. Mm-hmm. And she thought, you know what? There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. And so she developed this product. And now it works really well. And mm-hmm. she has a lot of traction. And But see, you just telling that story, you have my attention. Exactly. Undivided attention. Because it's a personal story that you can relate to. Yeah, that's what I was telling my client. I was just like, um, I would just like to point out you just told me a story. I asked you out of the entire conference, what's the one thing, like, who do you think did the best? You just told me a story. Mm -hmm. And I had been up to that point trying to get him to work, you know, on his story. Cause he's like, Oh, you know, the numbers, we have the numbers, we have the traction. We've already raised two million. It's going to be fine. And he turned to me and he's like, can we work on the story today? And I was like, yes, we can. (laughs) Yes, we can. So I'm so glad that you just said that. That's so important. And it's how we, I say this all the time, all the time to my clients. No kid ever turned to his parent and said, "Mommy, tell me a statistic." Right? Yeah. It's we understand our brains are hardwired to understand stories. It's how mm-hmm. we make sense of the world around us, and it's how we remember information. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, if you're listening and if you're pitching next week, tell a story. Yep. Make it memorable. Did you, um, when you were pitching? Deal Cloud, were, did, was Ben doing the pitching when you were trying to raise money? Were you doing the pitching? Were you doing it together? How did that work? So oddly enough, we pitched together. Um, so, you know, early days in 2012, um, while we were pitching to raise money, we also kind of went through the NCIDEA grant, Charlotte Venture Challenge, the Charlotte Chambers Power Up pitch, and we did all those together. Um, so we had the two-minute version, the five-minute version, the 10-minute version, the sit down and let's go through our deck for an hour version. Sure, yeah. Um, but we did it together. Now, now Ben did a lot of the lead, you know, just initial conversations. But if we are getting up and pitching, we did it together, which is kind of unique. Um, you don't see it that often. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, going back to the skill sets that we brought, I think we were able to portray that Ben could sell and Ben knew the industry inside and out. And I could sell that I'm the software guy and that I've run businesses before. And, you know, I think that dynamic just worked well in our pitch. Well, I say it worked well, and then we didn't raise any money in 2012. <laughs> but, but, um, but we did it for the longest time. Yeah. Well, I want to – so you've mentioned about not raising money in 2012 a couple times. I'm going to pull something up here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an article that I was looking at that – yeah, that Greg Brown from Charlotte Angel Fund wrote in August 2018. Yep. And I know exactly the article. This that was right after we sold the business. Yeah. And I think the tone of his article was Charlotte you missed the mark. Yeah, we he didn't did. Raise, he literally you know, said Charlotte yeah. missed out. Yeah, yeah. And he says, according to Crunchbase, DealCloud raised a total of approximately 10 million of investor capital prior to its sale to Intap. Had it taken them $25 million, $30 million, even $40 million of capital to earn the same offer, the outcome may have been much less, a much less happy group of founders and investors. And I just thought, you know, he, and he mentions in the article that Charlotte missed out. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, you, you've mentioned a couple times that, you know, in 2012, you didn't raise the money, you didn't get the money, it, it was a fail, yeah. but... Overall, it might have actually worked out pretty great for you guys. It did. Um, there's a uh, there's a VC guy, former entrepreneur that I follow on Twitter named Jason Lemkin. And his um, advice is you've got to exit for at least 10 times of what you raised. If you exit for 10 times, your investors are going to be happy. 
And we were able to do that. But Greg's right. If we had raised not $10 million, but $30 million, um, maybe not everybody is happy with the exit. Right. Uh, so we were able to do that. So, yeah, in retrospect, if the money came easy um, back in 2012, we may have raised a lot more money. We would have been further diluted. Right, um, yeah. You know, so so that worked out, and I think you know, I think that's a it's a good case study. But you know, Greg's other point there is that we really struggled in Charlotte. Um, now it was a different environment that then that it is now. Uh, we never even got an at bat in front of IMAF, which was the predecessor of Charlotte Angel Fund. They didn't let us pitch. It's like what the hell? We were the you know we are definitely one of the top five startups. Back in 2012, yeah. we couldn't even get a, a, a spot on the calendar to pitch to the investors. When you finally sold, did you kind of walk by and just like drop a microphone in front of the office? Like, how you like me now? Yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> I'll be honest. Good. I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty good about yeah. it. And uh, you didn't give us a snap back. Right. Well, you, well, you were acquired by a company out in Silicon Valley, right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So our lead investor for... Our Series A was a company or a VC out of St. Louis, of all places, and then we got acquired by a Silicon Valley um, business. So yeah, you're like, yeah. see you later, Charlotte. Yeah, so we we're, we're doing going some. straight to Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. eat, eat my dust. Yeah. All right, going back to Seed the South, one of the things that comes up over and over and over again, and I talk to clients about it a lot, and I've heard a lot of investors talk about this as well, is how important the team is. Mm-hmm. So as an investor. And for those of you who might be pitching at Seed the South or thinking about pitching investors and thinking about what to put in your deck and how to explain the team Mm -hmm. in your pitch, what are you looking for in founders? What are some must-haves? What are some deal-breakers? You know, that's a really good question because we always get the slide that has, you know, eight people on the slide that are advisors that are in the business. And and all of that is important. But... For me, it comes down to the founder or, if there's two of them, the co-founders. And just do they have, do they have just the, the, the gumption to just they're not going to fail um, and they're not going to let things fail. So I just, I just invested in, and I guess I can say it, um, in a company here called Fifth Asset. It's a brand new company. Their, prod, their software has not been, um, or it'll be released uh, right around Seed the South. And the founder of that firm, Tyler, he just, he gets it. And he is just a tireless worker. He knows his industry inside and out. He can verbalize it extremely well. And I just, you know, I, because they don't, and it's kind of my rule, don't invest unless, you know, I just said that you can build a piece of software and no one will come. Sure. And so I broke my rule and I invested in Tyler's company because I just have a lot of confidence in him and his co-founder. I, I just think that, they really, really understand the market. They understand the pain they're solving for. And, um, you know, I think, and I could be wrong, I think they're building a piece of software that they'll come to, that people will come to. Um, so all the advisors are nice, and you need to have advisors that are industry experts and that type of thing. But just like the boards that I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm involved, but I'm not running the company. At yeah. the end of the day, Tyler's running the company, and you have to have confidence in Tyler. And I do. And that's why I invested in the company. Yeah, it's those people with uh, boots on the ground, 
right? And same like you and Ben, when you're taking phone calls at 11 o'clock on a yeah. Tuesday night, they have your personal cell phone numbers. You're the ones who are actually doing the work. It's like the Fred Flintstone car, right? Like you're the feet yeah. pushing the car. So yeah, advisors are great. And that's really important because of course you want a team that you can go to and ask questions and get advice mm. from, but who's actually doing the work? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing is too, and this is probably not a popular opinion because we're talking about Seed the South. You can get absolutely consumed with venture conferences, with meetups. And next thing you know, your eight-hour day, or if you're an entrepreneur, hopefully it's more like a 14-hour day, um, you spend more than half of the day doing that kind of stuff. None of that matters. And I tell tell, um, colleagues I work with that at the end of the day, your number one priority is to build your business. And so... Yeah, you know, that meetup would be nice to go to, but, and maybe you'll meet a prospect there, but, uh, you know, chances are your time is better spent building your business or spending time with customers or spending time with advisors. Uh, I just think that you can really get caught up in all of the noise. You just got to pick and choose where you're spending your time, but you can get consumed by all that stuff. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, my advice to entrepreneurs is pick your spots but build your business. Right, be strategic. Yeah. All right, we're going to take another quick break, but when we get back, I just have a couple more questions about Seed the South, so stay tuned. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by Delivery Path. Do you work on or build WordPress websites for a living? Do you want to work with a web host provider that's more like a partner and not just a vendor? If so, check out deliverypath.com. Everyone knows that a website isn't complete just because the web design is complete. That's the offline part of the project. Now you have to get it online. That means you have to migrate it to the right platform, manage the DNS, secure the certificates, keep it updated, and then make sure it's fast, safe, secure, and optimized every single day. That's where Delivery Path comes in. They partner with creative agencies and do all of this for them. When it comes to WordPress website hosting, you get what you pay for. So if you think the website you're building is worth $5, then get a discount vendor. But if you really want that website to work for your client, let the experts at Delivery Path manage it for you. Unlike discount web hosting companies, Delivery Path provides concierge-level customer service. If you ever have a problem with your website, they don't use chatbots. They actually chat with you. When you call Delivery Path, someone local answers the phone. So if you're a creative agency, contact them today. When you partner with Delivery Path, you partner with the best. So you can do what you do, and they can do the rest. To learn more, visit deliverypath.com or email service at deliverypath.com. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by The Pitch Prof. Do you ever wish you had more confidence as a public speaker? Is it holding you back from getting to the next level in your career? Or are you a small business or startup trying to raise capital or pitch investors? My company is The Pitch Prof, and my specialties are investor pitches, business presentations, and public speaking. I help clients develop, design, and deliver their presentations for maximum ROI. Whether you're going after 20 grand or 2 million, I can help you get the money you need so your business succeeds. I help my clients craft and structure the content in the presentation visually design it, and deliver it as an authentic and engaging public speaker. If you want to advance your career or your business, hire a communication coach because what you say is as important as how you say it. 
regardless of your skill level as a public speaker, I can help you communicate with confidence. To learn more or schedule a call, visit thepitchprof.com. Does the look of the pitch deck matter to you at all? For example, does it diminish the pitch if there are 12 lines of text per slide with text and no images? Does, does the look of the deck matter? I hate to say this, but it does to me. And to be honest with you, to pay someone to spend, I don't know, 8, 14 hours developing kind of look and feel your pitch deck, it was, it was money well spent. Um, and then, yeah, put pictures in there, you know, the, the, the less words, the better. Um, and don't, don't get up and read words off of your PowerPoint. Hallelujah. Tell stories. Um, and I know, and again, I know you're all about storytelling, but yeah. storytelling just resonates. It brings the user in. So the, think of the, think of your slides as kind of backup material to the story that you're telling. I think that's great. So as a, as again, as a pitch coach, I help develop design and help them deliver. And I have, I've, I've, I will build out and help people build out their decks. And I've had some people be like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a, looks like a PowerPoint from 1999. Right, right. Don't use courier font. <laughs> <Yeah>, 15 <laughs> lines of text. There's three different ideas on one slide. The audience is so busy because people compulsively read what is in mm. front of them, right? So we're so busy reading the stuff that... That you're missing the story. Yeah, you miss everything. So I'm, I'm glad you sent that. I think that really matters. And I think, especially it, right now, the graphics that we see so often are so slick. They're so, they're so well designed that to have something that looks old fashioned right. when you're trying to say that you're innovating or disrupting something, it just, right. there's such a disconnect there yeah. from what it is that we're seeing to what it is that they're saying that it just doesn't work. So I, I absolutely agree. Throw some money, pay someone to help you build the deck. If that's not really, yeah. and to your point, right? Like founders and entrepreneurs need to be really strategic about where they spend their time. If you can hand that over to someone and get them to build it for you and make it look better than you could do it on your own, then that frees you up to do the work on your right, business and right, build the business. Right. I would even go one step further is have your website match your pitch deck to also and convey the yes. same message. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've gone on the website. Your invest, investors will look at your website. Absolutely. They will. And I know if I'm going into a pitch... Um, like Greg will send out the list of companies before Wednesday night pitches um, for Charlotte Angel Fund. I'll go to their website and just become somewhat educated so I can write down a couple questions that hopefully they'll answer in the pitch, but if they don't, I'm prepared with those questions. So um, I don't know if everybody does that, but you know, if your message is different on your website just because you haven't had a chance to update your website in nine months than from your pitch deck, that's a problem. Yeah, there's a um, disconnect. There's a disconnect yeah. there, and you're telling a different story. And look, I get it. Early stage companies are going to pivot, and they're going to change their message from time to time. But you you have to keep both of those um, in sync. And I think the look and feel of both of those goes a long way, also. I think so too. It's really about brand building. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't have to hire a you know a brand person for that. Just just uh, you know be really diligent about conveying the same message. Yeah, and being consistent. And being consistent. Yeah, yeah. one of the things I say is because what you say is as important as how you say it. So if you're, you know, if you're conveying information, it should be consistent across platforms. Yeah. All right, so one last question. What advice do you have for the individuals practicing their pitches for Seed the South <laughs> next week? 
uh, you know, it's easier to say this than done, but just relax. Um, you know, I, I saw some of the pitches recently at the, uh, the venture conference and you can tell, um, there's, there's one company from QC FinTech, um, class 11 company called fact squared. Um, and so the bill, the CEO, I was a mentor to the company He's, he's, he's kind of like an Albert Einstein type. And, and Bill, please don't take offense to this because this is actually a compliment. No, I think I've seen him. He's the one who's doing the database of political yeah, conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a bot that can, you yeah. know, that can see inflections in voice and everything. It's a cool product. And the thing is, is that when Bill pitched at the venture conference, he just, he told stories and he was funny and he wasn't reading his slides He's not the most polished public speaker, but man, his pitch resonated, I think. Yeah. Just because he, you know, he was passionate about, yeah, that's the other piece of advice is just, if you can just convey your passion, that this is your life, that this is, you go to bed thinking about this on, you know, Saturday night and you're just manic about your company. If you can convey that and, you know, Bill's pitch, he conveyed that, that this is, this is, and, and again, you don't have to be the most polished public speaker, but if you can convey your passion, if you can relax, and if you can storytell, you know, I think it goes a long way. Yeah, that's huge. And with Bill, what was so obvious, I saw him at Pitch Breakfast, he knows his stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he knows it inside and out. And that I think also goes a long way because people are going to ask you and, you know, get you through a curveball at you. And if it's like, no, I've, I've looked at this problem, I've looked at this issue and I've looked at the solution from every possible angle. I know what we are. I know what we do. I know how we can grow. Then you're good to go. Right. Right. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This has yeah. been really fun. If people want to learn more about Deal Cloud or Falfurious Capital, where can they go? Um, so a couple, first of all, everything's out on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I tend to use the Rob Cummings Charlotte, um, since I've been in Charlotte for 21 years, but, um, my Twitter handle is at Rob Cummings CLT. Um, and then, uh, you know, on LinkedIn, um, and again, there's profiles at DealCloud and Falfurious Capital. Uh, Twitter handle for DealCloud is at DealCloudNation. Twitter handle for Falfurious Capital is at FalfuriousCap. Um, so those are the different uh, uh, Twitter locations, LinkedIn, and um, and then of course the websites directly. Sure. And so a quick Google search, if you can spell Falfurious, which is <laughs> F-A-L-F-U-R-R-I-A-S, you can get a feel for the portfolio companies and the type of businesses that we invest in there. That's great. And if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at FunFailPodcast. You can learn more about the show at www.funwithfailure.com. If you want to say hi or find out about sponsorship opportunities, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And until next time, go have some fun.